Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horsebook. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horsebooks, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. Today, I am so excited to have MJ Evans on the show. Hi, MJ. Hi, Carly. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And before we get into the fun thing, which is the interview, I'm going to read your biography just so people have a little bit of your background before we get into the questions, okay? Okay. Great. Award-winning author MJ Evans grew up in Lake Oswego, Oregon, and graduated from Oregon State University. She spent five years teaching junior high and high school students before retiring to raise her five children. She is a lifelong equestrian and enjoys competing in dressage and riding in the beautiful Colorado mountains. Oh, that's so fun. Five children and you still have time for horses and writing books. I don't know how you do it. Um, I waited till they were a little older. I, I can I imagine. I horses for, and writing for quite a while. Well, and, and you probably enjoyed every minute of raising beautiful children, I'm sure. Yeah. And they're great. So I wanted to ask you really quickly before I ask the first question, you just were on an all-nighter from Hawaii, and you, you signed up to do the interview today. I'm so impressed. How, <laughs> what were you, you went from 80 degrees to 5 degrees in seven hours. Tell, yeah. tell us a little bit, like, were you, on, were you in Hawaii for vacation, for fun, for business? What were you yeah, doing? We were in Hawaii just for eight days of fun, enjoying the sun. We left Colorado, and it was 80 degrees. We didn't even pack anything warm, of course. And then while we were gone, my poor friends who were taking care of my horses got to tromp through the snow for four days. And we got home early this morning and it was five degrees. Oh my goodness. I bet you're missing that sunshine right now. (laughs) That was a big culture shock. (laughs) I'm sure. Please tell me you weren't tromping to your front door in your sandals uh, in the snow. Well, I did have some tennis shoes. Okay, that's good. (laughs) But I'm sure you're happy to be reunited with your ponies, right? I am. I had to go out and give them big hugs. Of course. And my friends had put on their warm blankets, so they were nice and cozy. Oh, that's good. That's always my favorite thing to do after, you know, vacation is fun, but all I ever want to do is gallop home really fast and get to my horses. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. You had said we could stay an extra day because the weather was so bad, but I couldn't wait to see the horses, so I had to come back. Yeah, they're, they're as big a part of the family as anything, our furry friends. They are. So, so leading us into that, can you tell us a little bit about your horses? I'd love to hear more about them. Well, I grew, well, I always tell people I was born with manure in my blood. (laughs) I was a horse lover since birth. My parents, who were not horse people, couldn't understand this strange daughter they had that couldn't stand driving past a horse without screaming, horse. So they let me start taking lessons when I was eight years old. And by the time I was 10, I was taking two lessons a week. And I bought my own horse when I was 13 with my own money, and I had to support him myself. Mm. And I grew up in Pony Club, which was a great avenue for learning not only riding, 
but also horsemanship. And I raised my little Arabian through Pony Club. And if they had, my parents had known anything about horses, they would never have let me buy a two and a half year old untrained Arabian. Oh my. <laughs> I know. So you got to grow up together. Yeah, we did. And that horse took care of me. And I kept him um, until I got married. And then I made my husband promise that when the last child went to first grade, I was getting a horse again. And he kept his promise and I kept mine, except that I got two horses, not just one. <laughs> I know, don't tell. Now, you know, you say if you just buy bay horses, your husband never knows when you get a new one. Oh. Just always buy bays. <laughs> There's so horse husbands, but that is so true. I can't tell you how many times I walk out to like a backwards halter or you know, a blanket that's backwards. You know, it's like, I know, I know. I mean, I have to give credit for trying. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. So you, yeah. so you have two bay horses, is that right? And now, actually, um, I had three until about a month ago. My beautiful, this guy that's the cover boy on my trail guide books, passed away at almost 29 a month mm -hmm. ago. I'd had him for 22 years. He was just my buddy. He was an awesome little, well, not little, 16 hand thoroughbred. And I loved, loved him. I also have a large pony jumper who's, um, half Welsh pony, one quarter thoroughbred, one quarter Arabian, and my wonderful dressage horse that some of my books star, Jazz, um, and that's in my author photo. He passed away about a year and a half ago, suddenly from a tear in his heart. Oh my goodness. Which broke my heart and devastated me. So after a few months of mourning, I did buy a new little dressage horse, She's a war, American warm blood. She's half Hanoverian, half Turkaner, bred in Kansas City. And I sent you a picture of her winning the Region 5 USDF Championships a month ago. That's amazing. Gosh. You need to tell us a little bit more about that. And for people, uh, for people listening in, I will certainly include the pictures of MJ with her horses so you can see her fabulous horses in the show notes for the show. Oh, uh, they're fun. They're fun. So but this big win. Tell us about this. Well, I'd had her for about a year and three months, and she had been started in dressage at, with a lovely trainer, and I bought her because the woman who owned her fell off her and broke her pelvis, mm -hmm. and they discovered she had osteoporosis and said, you cannot ride. Well, so I am short, I'm only five feet tall, and this little mare is only 15'1". So she and I were a perfect match. And she, I've never had a mare before, I've always stayed away from mares, but she <laughs> and I are just buddies. She's wonderful. And I worked with a wonderful trainer, um, Grant Schneiderman, is his name, and he was uh, for many, many years on the US eventing team. And he now he's just focusing on dressage and he worked us so hard and we went to the USDF finals and region five finals. And she was the winner of the, of the first level adult amateur class. That's amazing. That must've been like, like the pinnacle uh, for you. It of, was, of it was. Showing career. 
it was so wonderful. It was one of those things where you do the test. It's about a six and a half minute test. And I rode the test and I trotted down the center line, halt, salute, and then just went, yes. You knew it. I just knew mm -hmm. we had done a great job. And, every, you know, everything just fell together. Oh, that's the most beautiful feeling. And, and let, let, me, let me ask you this. For people that aren't familiar with the discipline of dressage, did you have to memorize your test? Can you talk yes. a little bit about you what do you do? You do have to memorize yeah. the test. Um, and in the qualifying shows to get to championships during the spring and summer, you have to go to qualifying shows. And you don't have to memorize the test for the qualifying shows, but for the championships, you do have to have it memorized. And I always memorize it because it's part of my fight against Alzheimer's. I'm going to keep my brain working. Mm -hmm. And so I do memorize the tests even in the qualifying shows. And it's a test that is every five years, USDF puts out new tests at each level. And you have to write the test as it's written and you are judged both on rider ability and horse suppleness as well as accuracy of writing the test and the movements. And, so, and yeah, and you have to perform these different movements at certain markers around. Right. There are letters. A dressage arena is 20 meters by 60 meters. And there are letters around the outside of the arena that are your markers. Um, and the test will tell you, enter at A, trot sitting, halt saluted X, you know, and then proceed trot sitting, track left, or whatever, whatever the test is. And then it tells you what to do at each of those letters, and you have to memorize that. And accuracy is really a big part of your score, as well as, um, you know, proper bends, suppleness of the horse, submission of the horse, rider ability, rider seat and position, you know, all those things are judged as well. So well, it's fun. That is amazing. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. It was really, really exciting. Great. And so I'm chomping at the bit to ask you about your books, because what, what is so amazing, I mean, you've already mentioned that some of the horses in your life have inspired your books, but you have, you know, written a plethora of books. And for those of you watching on YouTube, MJ has them all out behind her and, and they're award-winning books. And uh, I wanted, you know, you've written two fantasy series, uh, a standalone fiction book, or a couple standalone fiction books, multiple nonfiction books, including a series on trail riding in Colorado, which is so cool, and uh -huh. a children's book. So, you know, would you tell us a little bit about your books and what excites you about writing horse books? I mean, and show us your books. <laughs> okay. Well, as you mentioned, I um, started out with my nonfiction trail guide books, and I have three. They're called Riding Colorado, and they have been very popular in Colorado, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. I even have people all over the country ordering Riding Colorado 3 because it's overnight trips where you can come with your horse from anywhere and stay at a cabin or a bed and breakfast or a campground. And I preview the place where you're staying, the horse accommodations and the human accommodations, and then the trails in the area. So that one, people order from all over the country. But the other two are specifically day trips from Denver. Mm. And the reason I wrote those was because I moved here 25 years ago from Oregon. And I didn't know where to ride. Mm -hmm. And I 
made friends with another lady at church who was an equestrian and she had a favorite trail up in the mountains that we would ride and we would ride it and we'd ride it again and again and again. <laughs> but I get bored, except mm-hmm. for with massage, I never get bored. But on trails, I want to see different places. And I said, well, there must be more trails to ride. So we just have to find them. I'm going to go to the bookstore and get a book on trail rides. Well, I went to the bookstore and there were books on hiking and mountain biking and hiking with your family and hiking with your dog and all these other books. But there were no equestrian trail guide books. And you know, equestrians need to know different things than other people. Absolutely. We need to know if we can even get our horse trailer in and out of the parking lot. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, what kind of horse hazards are there bridges? Are there water crossings? Are there mountain bikers? Are there ATVs? You know, what are we going to run into with our horses? And we need to know those things. So I gathered some friends together and I said, I'm going to write a book and you're going to be my test writers. Oh, how fun. Yeah, I know. I mean, how fun is that? Every Friday for two years, we would ride a different trail that I would have researched during the week, Mm -hmm. tracked it down by contacting the counties and the cities and the state and the national parks and national forests, all the different entities that supervise the lands, and ask them, where can I ride? Where can I go? And I made this huge list. Well, we started riding these trails, and it was so much fun. My husband travels a lot, and he would call and say, well, what did you do today? And I go, oh, I researched all day. (laughs) (laughs) Research meant putting the kids on the school bus, packing a sack lunch for myself, loading my horse, and going to the mountain. Or I do have some trails that are down low on the plains, but most of them are up in the mountains because that's where I love to go. But that took two years of research and there were still more trails to ride, but the book was getting too big. Mm-hmm. You don't want to overprice it, make it too expensive for people. So I quit at 52 trails, a trail a week for a year is my motto. And then I started book two. And again, those are all day trips from Denver within a two-hour trailer drive okay. from Denver. So up toward Fort Collins or down toward Colorado Springs, you know, all that was within my range. So that was how I ended up doing those trail guide books. And they are nonfiction. And I've learned something for any of you who are interested in being an author. If you want to really sell a book, you need to write to a market. Mm. Write to market. Who is your buyer and what are they going to be looking for? And where are they going to look for it? So where did I take my books when they got printed? I took them to tack and feed stores, of course, mm-hmm. and put them on the counter in a little stand, and they sold out in three weeks. The first printing was sold out in three weeks. That's wonderful. I know. It was great. And now the funny thing about this is everybody knows Kit, the horse that just passed away. And I w- I'll go riding up on trails, and people will say, oh, you wrote co- Riding Colorado, didn't you? And I said, yes. How did you know? And they said, oh, I recognize your horse. Oh, <laughs> that's the funniest part about being a horse owner. I, is often, I know. 
I know we recognize the horses and we know the horses' names, but half the time we forget the name of the person that That's owns right. the horse. We don't know the person, but we know the horse. <laughs> that is right. That's so funny. So, so, you know, you have to be humble as an author. You can't let it go to your head, even if it's successful. That's right. Well, and it's a, it's a gift for other people, really, you know, so it's like you're taking a piece of yourself and you're putting it out there for other people. So yeah. it's always about the readers. It's always you know, and being an equestrian, I knew what equestrians would need to know uh-huh. and I what they'd be interested in finding out about a trail. So, I mean, I got onto some trails that were awful and mm-hmm. not for horses and mm-hmm. too dangerous, for example. And so I would either not include them in the book or if they were passable, I'd, I'd just warn people. Very difficult. You know, your horse has to be well-balanced and sure-footed. You have to be well-balanced, not afraid of heights. And, you know, I would tell them things like that. Well, what a wonderful resource that you provided for people living there in Colorado. I mean, it was a benefit to you and I'm sure it was fun to create and research, but, but to you know, to not have a guide like that for people who want to take their horses out and ride and explore and not get bored. I mean, what an amazing gift and resource for people. And I'm telling you what, I am going to, I'm going to buy that third book with the day trips to to Colorado. I'm throwing my horses in the trailer and we're going to ride together. (laughs) I have gone down to Arizona. So you can, you can come up to Colorado anytime. Yeah, and come on over to Arizona. We'll do some riding together too. I'm about, I'm about to start exploring the trails out here as Good. well. I need, I need a guidebook for Arizona. Will you write it for me and we can do well, that? I will. Together? Actually, <laughs> I started my fourth book, which is Riding Colorado and Beyond. Ooh. And I have a trail site, a campsite or resort or whatever. The one I have in Arizona is a little resort. And it's, um, I have one for Arizona, New Mexico, you know, all the way, all the states around Colorado as mm-hmm. well. So that's, that's right. what I'm working on right now. You come out here to do your research. We need to meet up. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So fun. That's really fun. But then, meanwhile, I had all sorts of fiction story ideas in my head. My favorite genre, besides just horse stories, I mean, I grew up re- devouring horse stories. Mm-hmm. Marguerite Henry was my favorite author. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I also love fantasy. So my first fiction books were the Mist Trilogy, Behind the Mist, Mists of Darkness, and The Rising Mist. And these books I call the Horse Lover's Fantasy because they're about the noble and great horses who are chosen to become unicorns when they die. Oh. And then, so it's a different twist on unicorn mythology. But, mm-hmm. And then the unicorns are like the guardian angels to the animals on earth. I love it. Isn't That's like that the fun? perfect, like, young adult yeah, book. It has horses. Land of horse lovers and fantasy lovers. Mm-hmm. And the horse, there's a lot of horse stuff because it's a modern day fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's set in modern times. And so, and they, and the unicorns, and we have the first unicorn rider in this book, um, go back and forth between Celestia, the unicorn kingdom, the, the immortal horse kingdom, mm-hmm. and the earth life, and horses that are in trouble. I have them go to Vienna, Austria, and rescue the Lipizzan stallions when they get kidnapped and held for ransom. Oh, wow. But I have them do all these things. Uh, of real horse type events. 
the Chinko Teak ponies. They help them swim across the channel. You know, they do stuff like that. That's wonderful. And how many books are in this series? In that series, there are three. Okay. It's a trilogy. And that series won the gold medal from the Mom's Choice Awards, which was the only award it was submitted to. And then it won a gold medal. So, hey, that was awesome. Congratulations. And tell us a little bit about the Mom's Choice Awards. How did you discover them? What do they do? Okay, the Mom's Choice Awards specifically look for values-centered reading material mm-hmm. where you're not using any bad language, you're not using any innuendo, you're teaching without preaching, you're teaching good values. So they're looking for that kind of material mm-hmm. that they can recommend to any parent that they could safely use for their, with their child. That's wonderful. Congratulations. You have all sorts of awards. I can't wait to hear about more of them. (laughs) Awards companies look for different things. There are some that are specifically value-centered, like the Mom's Choice Awards. And then there are others that are specifically focused on uh, children's literature. Like um, Percy, I have, has, is my only picture book, and it's probably the only one I'll ever do, but it was, it's based on a little racehorse, a little thoroughbred colt that doesn't like to run. And he's <laughs> read to be a racehorse, but he doesn't like to run. But he makes friends with a little boy in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And he discovers his real purpose in life is to be a therapy horse. Aww. And I was inspired to write both that book and In the Heart of a Mustang, because of the years I worked at PATH International, Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship, and that organization trains riding instructors to work with handicapped and disabled children and adults, but also work to work with um, troubled teens. Mm-hmm. And that was the impetus for writing this book. I, had, I saw how healing horses were for struggling teenagers and so this book is about a a teenager who gets in trouble with the law and gets sent to a horse therapy ranch in Arizona Mm. where he um, meets a wild mustang that's been adopted from the BLM and the old cowboy at the ranch teaches him how to train the horse while he teaches him about life and healing and forgiveness and kindness and patience all those things horses teach people and so that was, that's this book. And this book has won a half dozen national and international awards, one of which is the Equus Film Festival Award for Outstanding Young Adult Literature. And it also won, I wanted to mention, um, the Literary Classics Award, the gold medal from them. And they focus specifically on children's and young adult literature. So the literary classics focus on that age group. Now, other organizations, like it also has a medal here from the Reader's um, Favorite Awards. That's a really, really big international award. Thousands of books get sent into them each year internationally. And they have categories in all different genres and different ages. But some organizations like um, the... Purple Dragonfly Awards and the Literary Classics specifically focus on children's and young adult. 
That's wonderful. And uh, before we continue with your books, which I want to hear about all of them, because you have such fascinating stories about all of them. Uh, what, what advice would you have for authors that are thinking of submitting their books for awards? Because obviously you're a pro at this and you've, you've won several. What, uh, what is your recommendation, recommendation for authors looking to submit for books? And, and what do you think the value of, of book awards is for an author? Well, tremendous value. First of all, being able to have the stickers on your books when you're at a book festival or um, you're selling your book at a book signing, that sticker draws people's eye. That makes your book stand out from other books. Mm -hmm. But I, in the Miss Trilogy, I only submitted to one Reader's, the Mom's Choice Awards because I was new and I was a little naive. Mm -hmm. And I just figured, well, I'll just submit this because it seems to fit their criteria. So that'd be the first thing you'd look for is what kind of books they're looking for. And then, then it ends up getting the gold medal. Well, then I realized it really isn't that easy to win the gold medal and to, or first place. Some, some of them call them gold, give them gold medals. Some of them just give them first, second, third, that kind of thing. So I started submitting to uh, within the heart of a Mustang, I submitted it to six different awards companies that um, awards programs, and it ended up winning in all of them. It, oh my it, goodness! I, I know. A, what First, a what a great it, testament to your writing. I mean, well, that's thank you. But you can't put six stickers on your book and then <laughs> cover up the pretty picture. So I just kind of put different stickers on at different times, but. Um, and I only say that because that's not always going to happen. Right. You know, that, so I recommend submitting to four, five, six awards programs in hopes that you win one or two. Mm -hmm. You know, and you're not going to always win every mm -hmm. one because there's so many wonderful books out there. And, and the judging is very subjective. You know, you could set, submit your book to somebody who hates horses and you're out the window, you know. <laughs> so you you need to just pick a few that seem to fit your criteria. If you're writing for middle grade young adult or children's, you look for um, specifically programs that focus on those. Now the other thing is there are. It's particularly fun to submit to a writing program that has an awards ceremony. Mm such as literary classics or reader's favorite because then you get to go to the award ceremony and with film festival too and that's like and the film festival's award ceremony yet you get to go and meet mm -hmm. the other authors and talk with people and i've made some really good friends and contacts by doing that mm -hmm. and we help critique each other's work and we help edit each other's work and we'll do reviews for each other. Mm -hmm. And so there's some real benefits in getting to meet other people. Some of the programs don't have that, but, they, but they'll try to market your books in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so they do help promote your books for you. Now, there is an entry fee associated with, I think, yes. pretty much all, all book awards. Is that yes. right? And I will say Mom's Choice has become very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. It has a very good reputation, but it's also become very expensive. And the Nautilus Awards that this that 
uh, in the heart of a Mustang one has also become very expensive. So you got to take that into consideration. What's your budget going to be? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they can be anywhere from like $50 to three or $400. Oh my, that's quite yeah. an investment. Yeah. yeah, it is. So that's why I say pick a few that seem to fit your criteria that seem to fit your book mm-hmm. and, but do don't be like I was with one and just luck out. Do more than one. Mm-hmm. Uh, give yourself a few chances, you know, to to get a, to get an award. That's great. Thank you for that advice. And and obviously do your research and make sure that these organizations are credible. I you know I would suggest right like um, you know take a look at MJ's website and and see where she submitted her books or some of the yeah. authors that you uh, feel like your book is similar to or that you like. Uh, or in the same category, for example, all of us authors of horse books here on the uh-huh. podcast, you know, go check out our websites and see uh, where we've submitted our books. And, and that's, all, that's often helpful to make sure you're submitting to a credible organization. I, right. And yeah. look for the, somebody that has the same genre. That's right. That you're writing in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I don't write romance, for example. Mm-hmm. And there are some awards that are specifically for romance. That's right. You know, and those would be the ones you'd be interested in. Absolutely. That is awesome advice. So I'm really excited about the next book that you're about to show us. It's called, well, first of all, I have a Pinto, so it makes me really excited. You you have a Pinto. I have a paint, but her color is Pinto. So anything Pinto or paint makes my eyes pop. So I'm really excited. And your cover is beautiful. So Pinto, it's based upon the true story of the longest horseback ride in history. This is your newest book. It just came out um, last month. I came out, I came out this month, October 15th. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm already in November. We're oh, you are. <laughs> okay. A few weeks ago, this book came out. Cool. And um, I, I, I should say that this book took me over two years of research. I stumbled across this story when I was writing a blog post on famous horses for my blog, um, the mistrilogy.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for a new famous horse to write a blog post about. And I stumbled across Pinto, the horse that completed the longest horseback ride in history. So I was curious and I started researching what I could find about this little horse. Well, there wasn't a lot available. Hmm. Well, I discovered that there were some older photographs that were in a collection in Oklahoma City at the Western Museum in Oklahoma City. And I went to Oklahoma City and asked the research librarian if I could see their collection of materials on the Overland Westerners. That was the name of the four men who did this journey. And she said, who? (laughs) She had, that's how obscure this was. Here they have this collection of old photographs. She didn't even know they had them. Uh-huh. She rustled through, rustled through the um, basement and found a box of these old photographs, as well as a few other interesting articles and things. So that was my first attempt at research. Then I found the uh, Bainbridge Island History Museum in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Okay. And... That's what I called them this time. And I said, I would like to come up and see what materials you have on the Overland Westerners. 
They were thrilled. They were so excited. Bainbridge Island is where they live, the men live. And so this little museum on the island has a permanent exhibit of the Overland Westerners. Oh, great. I know, it was so great. And when I got there, they had a table set up with a computer and they had the files set out for me. They had a helper for me to photocopy anything I wanted. They had the original journals that the oh men Oh my goodness, had. how amazing. I know, oh. it was so amazing. I read, and now not every journal is still in existence, but every journal that is in existence, they have. <clears throat> I read all those journals and I took notes on all the events that I thought would be the most interesting to include. And as I was studying this, I realized that this story needed to be told by Pinto. Pinto, they wore out 17 horses on this journey. A Pinto was the only horse to make it the whole 20,300 miles over three years. He was the only horse to make it the whole way. Wow. I decided this needed to be like Black Beauty. Uh -huh. Pinto needed to tell this story. But this story starts actually with the Panama Canal, believe it or not. <clears throat> the Panama Canal in 1912 was nearing completion. It would be completed in 1914. It had taken 30 years to complete. The U.S. completed what France had started 30 years earlier. So Plans were underway in 1912 to have a celebration, the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco was going to be held in 1915. Well, George Beck was a logger up in Port Ad up in uh, in Washington State, and he was getting kind of tired of that job. He was in his 20s, and he was finding logging to be not a very happy profession. <laughs> Between the fires in the summer and the snow in the winter, he wasn't getting much work either. So he came up with this idea that he and his friends would become rich and famous by riding to every state capital in the Union. By this time in 1912, there were now 48 states because Arizona and New Mexico had just joined the Union. So they were going to ride to every state capital over the course of three years and end up at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. And they expected to be famous. They expected ticker tape parades and book deals and movie deals. There are now movies were starting up. and That was going to be cool. And they were going to get all this fame and fortune. Unfortunately, Nobody cared. You're kidding. Nobody cared that these four men were riding around the country. And does your book tell us why? Because... It's well, I can only guess as to why. Huh. They, and I, all those pictures I told you about in Oklahoma City, there are all these pictures of these four men in, standing in front of the Capitol buildings and nobody's there. Nobody. Huh. And I can guess that in their case, timing is everything, and their timing was terrible. Hmm. The, you have to remember what's going on at the beginning of the 20th century. First of all, cars 
were the big exciting thing. People were much more excited about cars than horses at this time. And then in 1914, you have World War I starting. So now there's the concern and the worry about the war going on overseas. Mm -hmm. The only interest in horses was to take them overseas to put them in the battle when Europe started lose, you know, losing their numbers of horses. In, they lost, well, some numbers say 6 million, but I read as high as 9 million horses and mules were killed during World War I. And so they would come over here and start buying our horses, shipping mm. them over. And of course, our horses never returned. Mm-hmm. They just got let loose in Europe. But the, you know, these other competing factors were going on. Nobody cared about these guys. In fact, in all of the records in the history of the World's Fair in San Francisco, there isn't even a mention of them. Not a mention. Oh, wow. And now they have this fantastic book commemorating their journey written by you in the voice of the horse that of made the entire, they, entire route. Yeah. And, you know, I, they wanted a book. A hundred years later, they're getting their book. There you go. You, com- <laughs> you completed the journey for these, for these women and their horses. I completed what they had set out to do. When, when uh, they completed their journey, poor George Beck tried to get Jack London to write the book, and Jack oh. London wouldn't write it. <laughs> so MJ Evans did, just a hundred years late. Well, that's <laughs> wonderful. And so what, while you were researching writing this book, what was your most favorite thing about about stumbling across this story did something stand out for you um that that was really special you know as i was reading their journals and i saw the trials and the struggles they went through one of the things that impressed me the most was regardless of how cold and hungry and miserable those four men were they always took care of their horses first. Their horses were fed even if they weren't. Their horses were sheltered even if they weren't. Mm-hmm. And I thought, these were true horsemen. They cared about their horses. Yes, they wore out 17 horses, you know, from, and, and one article said that um, a couple of horses died, but nowhere in the journals that we still have was it recorded how the horses died? So I did write it as a historical fiction, obviously, because I'm telling it from the horse's point of view. But mm-hmm. I, so I took a little literary license and made up some events that would cause the horses to die. And I thought, okay, so obviously colic had mm-hmm. to be one of the reasons because that's so common for a horse to die, particularly horses that are getting worked so hard and are, the food is... The feed is inconsistent. Sometimes mm-hmm. they were fed moldy, rotten hay and old grain and that kind of thing. So I had one horse die from colic. And then, you'll appreciate this, I had one horse die a rattlesnake bite. Oh, my. In the desert riding between <laughs> Albuquerque and Phoenix. And I called my vet and I said, now, how would a horse die from a rattlesnake bite? But on the nose, right? Did exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what the vet said. He said that a horse will be curious and hear the rattle and stick its nose down and get bitten on the nose. Mm-hmm. And within minutes, the swelling starts and the horse's breathing is cut off. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the second way that I had a horse die. 
but there were um, some terrible adventures that they experienced. Pinto almost drowned at one point. He started out as the pack horse. They initially started with five horses, mm -hmm. and then they couldn't afford five horses by the end, so they cut down to four. But Pinto was initially the pack horse, and they were crossing a river in Montana, and his pack slipped and pulled him over. And oh, goodness. Under oh, no. And so I described that from Pinto's point of view, from his fear of drowning. And there were just lots of events like that that, you know, that were hard, very oh, difficult. I can only they, imagine. They ran into some wonderful people and they ran into some awful people. You know, they had thieves that came in. This one man came into their camp and stole their salad and bridle. And, you know, they just had some terrible things happen, but they had some really wonderful things happen too. Some nice people who cared and took them in and helped them along the way. Wow, this sounds was, like such a fascinating journey. It was heart-wrenching though. Yeah. And, and the, in the end, George felt like a failure. He ended up not getting his book deal, tried to write the story himself when he returned to Bainbridge Island and just never could get it. I mean, writing, as you know, is not easy. No. And he just couldn't get it. And so he ended up dying um, a, a drunk falling in a drainage ditch and drowning. Yikes. Oh my God. It's, it's a sad story. Is there a happy ending for Pinto, please? Yes, Pinto okay. <laughs> becoming the island pet. And he was, after George died, he just was on his own on the island and people would feed him and take care of him and love on him. But he just kind of became the island pet. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, exciting. And so this is your recent release. What number book is this for you? This is number well, that's book number 14. Book 14. Wow. That's amazing. I uh, aspire to have 14 books one of these days. <laughs> Writing is not easy. So it's like congratulations on being able to put those fingers on the keyboard or pen to paper and, and do the work. And, and, and obviously it's been working for you because look at all your wonderful awards and success. And and you have another series there I back there. I didn't mention that. Let's talk about that too. Okay. This is, I teach horseback riding lessons and I'm always telling my students to be a centaur. Mm. Be one with your horse. Mm -hmm. Just think of you as one unit. Be a centaur, I tell them. Well, finally I decide, okay, so I need to write a fantasy series about centaurs. And so this is a completely fairy tale type fantasy. This is your classic fantasy um, set in the fantasy land of Christonia, where they that's populated by centaurs and ogres and cyclops and a little race of people called the Duende. They're half fairy and half human. I made them up. You can do that as you know when you're the author. Yeah, that's that's the fun part. <laughs> Making right. things and up. They're little, they're little. They're she's this Carling, who's the heroine in the story, is only three and a half feet tall. Oh, cool. This land has been torn apart by um, battles for control of the throne. For 150 years, though, no one's been able to hold the throne because the rightful heir is the one who wears the silver breastplate. Mm. No one expected the silver breastplate to be given to a little Duende girl on her 16th birthday 
the Wizard of Christonia gives Carling the silver breastplate. Not that she wanted it or ever sought after that, but she's given the breastplate and the assignment to complete the breastplate by gathering the four stones of light. These stones of light are what I call the virtues or qualities of a great leader. And I chose four that I thought every true great leader should possess. The first one is mercy. The second one is courage. The third is integrity. Mm. And the fourth is wisdom. I love it. And, and you might think of other virtues that you would hold dear, but those were the ones that were important to me. And so each book recounts her and her friends finding each stone but they find the stone in the middle of the book and then you see how it changes her. Hmm. How she becomes merciful. How she develops the courage to do what is right. How she learns the meaning and importance of integrity. And then how she develops the wisdom to apply her knowledge to rule righteously. I so, love that. Yeah, so that's a fun, fun series. Thank you for sharing with us the stories behind all of your books. Let's, this is something else that I learned about you uh, through the Equiswim Festival. You've been a nominee, you've been there several times. I, I first um, saw In the Heart of a Mustang when I was uh, there the first year I entered in the rains. And that's how I learned about you. And all my friends have talked about you and I'm so excited that this is the first time we're actually talking to each other. We've communicated in different ways. And then I get to meet you this year at the Aquaswim Festival, which I'm excited to do. I love meeting people in person. It's just so fun, particularly other authors. We have so much to talk about. But I learned that you are also a screenwriter. Um, I would love, to, is that right? Well, loosely, I um, co-authored a screenplay for In the Heart of a Mustang with another, with a professional screenwriter. So we worked together, every word, every page, we worked together to get that screenplay done. And I, so I can't really label myself a screenwriter because I've only done it one time with an, in conjunction with another screenwriter. And she is a screenwriter. I mean, that's what she does all the time. And I learned that writing a screenplay is completely different than writing a novel. I'm a novel writer. You know, if I don't have 65,000 words, and I'm in trouble. I have to be, that was why I'm only going to do one picture book in my life. You know, picture books are a thousand words and 30 pages. And I'm glad I'm, you just clarified that because I was going to ask you why, why you would never do another children's book. <laughs> so, so you have to be, you have to be tight with your words on both a children's book you and do. a screenplay. Yep, you do. And I enjoyed doing the picture book. I know I'm getting off here, but no, no, this is great. I just, I wanted the experience of working with an illustrator and just kind of the fun of, of doing that. Plus, I wanted to tell the story of horse therapy for um, disabled children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had a couple of motives there, but that's not really who I am. I, I have big books in my head. And so writing a screenplay, you have to take, let's take this book, 300 and some, 350 pages, and you have to reduce it down to 120 maximum wow. pages. And that includes any blocking notes. So that's really hard for me. And if you ever have read a book and then you went to see the movie and you go, oh, but they left out this and they left out yeah. that. Uh -huh. yeah, you have to take out about three-fourths of the book. Wow, that must have been hard too for you to edit 
your words from your completed novel, I'm sure. It is very, because everything in, to you, everything in your book is important mm -hmm. to you. And that was where the screenwriter helped me say, yeah, that's important to a reader, but to the movie, to the movie watcher, we've got to pull out this. We've got to have more action. We've got to have more, you know, um, uh, things that they can relate to. And you also write completely differently. Hmm. In writing a novel, you use, you write with a fine pen. Or, or if think of an artist using a little tiny paintbrush. Mm -hmm. With the screenplay, you're going to use the broad brush strokes. <laughs> the paint roller? <laughs> yeah, or a paint roller. Because the director wants to have his name on it, and he wants to have creative license. So you can't dictate everything to the director, because he wants to have some freedom to, to, um, create, to create as well. So I use this. The screenplay was broad brush strokes. This is your little tiny paintbrush for your little calligraphy pen where you're getting every little detail in. Now, the other thing is think of a play. If you've done any theater, you know that you're using dialogue to tell the story and a little bit of movement and blocking, but a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. You can't go into the um, characters' heads and hearts the way you can in a novel. Mm -hmm. which is what I particularly like to do. That's one of my favorite things is mm -hmm. to paint, paint pictures with words. And you don't do that in a screenplay. So I learned a lot about writing screenplays um, from that experience. So yes, I have written one screenplay. Well, that's exciting. That's still, still a learning opportunity and building your resume. Mm -hmm. When you talked about blocking when it came to screenplay, Plays. What what does that term mean? Just so I talking you know. is the movements. The oh, so movements. Okay, so like actor A takes um, off cowboy hat, that kind of right, thing. Right, okay. that kind of thing. And you can't do too much of that, as I say, because the director wants to do a lot of that. But you'd say um, he moves over to the corral and puts his, and puts his foot on the fence and watches the horses. Mm. That would be a blocking movement. A movement. Or, and you also have to, you just set the scene as to interior, exterior, nighttime, daytime, um, out in, in a, a dry field or in a car, you know, you, kind of set, you set the scene very vaguely like that. So what's next with the screenplay? What, what, do you, what, what are your plans for that? I'm curious. Well, we submitted it to the Equus Film Festival Literary Competition. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see how it does. We hope it does well. And then we'll start submitting it to producers who might be interested. How exciting is that? Well, fingers crossed for you. And, and you never know. You never yeah. know. Well, the, but the world needs more horse movies and we need That's more authentic horse movies and we need more horse movies by people that know horses so i'm right. for you and i'm excited well, so that's the other thing we want to find a producer and director that know horses mm -hmm. so they don't mess it up well the equus film festival is the, the perfect place to be talking around because there's directors that know that's horses. introduce it to some people that's right no horses because you know once you sell your screenplay to a producer it's out of your hands it's gone yeah so that's also got to be a difficult part as the author of a, of a book yeah. to hand over your, your baby and say, yeah. okay, it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, um, brings me to the whole concept of using traditional publishers or um, 
for setting up. I've set up my own independent publishing company now, but I started with traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. Except for the trail guide books, I did those myself. But I mean, my with my fiction books, I wanted those to be distributed nationally. I wanted a national audience, and I didn't know much. I didn't know anything, mm-hmm. and so I did the traditional: submit your manuscript, write your query letter, hope you get a response, then submit your manuscript, hope you get a response, and then turn your book over to a publisher. And I learned some things doing that first of all I learned a lot about the whole publishing industry I learned that um, you still have to do most of the marketing yourself that seems to be what most people are sharing when when it comes to being with a traditional publisher is that you have to take control of marketing your books I'm sorry continue no that's okay I, I what I discovered with marketing is they would have a conference call with me and give me a list of things I needed to do <laughs> So there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also learned um, that I learned about things like the awards programs because the publisher had submitted it to Mom's Choice Awards. I didn't know about that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so I learned a lot. I learned about the importance of the interior formatting program that you use. I learned the importance of good editing. Mm-hmm. But I also learned that you have to do a lot of the work yourself. Mm-hmm. And I learned that you don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And in like when the Miss Trilogy would sell, one of those books would sell on Amazon for ten ninety five. I would make thirty five cents. The author's the last one to get paid. Mm-hmm. So I started looking into hiring my own editors, hiring my own cover designers, buying my own formatting program, and doing it myself. And in the heart of the Mustang was the first one. After using four, doing four books traditionally, mm-hmm. I did in the heart of a Mustang first, as with my own company that I called Dancing Horse Press, and it, ha- it has done extremely well. It's been a number one bestseller on Amazon numerous times. So yes, you can succeed on your own. Things have changed a lot for people who would like to do their own work we've been hurt by poor quality work out there if you decide you're going to self self-publish a book and you don't bother to do all the important and sometimes expensive steps particularly editing yes i suck at that edit 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 edit, edit, edit then edit, edit some more <laughs> don't do it yourself don't do it yourself you can do the first few drafts yourself mm-hmm. But um, you've got to send it out and get it professionally edited. That just totally hurts your book if your editing is poor. Now, that being said, I'll read books by Harcourt Brace or Scribner's or all the big guys, and I'll find an editing error Mm -hmm. in in their books as well. I mean, it happens when you're dealing with that many words. There can be a typo. I understand that. But you need to really try to keep get your book as clean and perfect as possible and that can only be done with a professional editor you just can't do it yourself so also the covers you've made comments about my covers they're awesome professional covers Mm -hmm. and they're eye-catching and that's the first thing people see is your cover and so it needs to be professionally done not no loving hands at home covers got to have it well done. So 
So um, those are just a couple of bits of advice. Now, you, the advantage is you do get a lot more for your book personally if you do it yourself. You do have to put out some money because I hire those. I hire editors that I hire and I have cover designers that I hire. Mm -hmm. And the, the, I bought a formatting program, so that was kind of a one-time deal. But, you know, the, you have to put in those expenses. Plus, if you've got to do, know about registering it, get your Library of Congress number, get your copyright registered. And the only advantage to registering your copyright is if you did ever want to maybe sell foreign rights or you wanted to turn it into a screenplay or something, mm -hmm. it's good to have your copyright registered officially to the copyright agency. So um, there's just some things you need to know to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. You've got to have your barcode. You've got to have your ISBN numbers. You've got to have, if, this, if the spine isn't a paperback uh, picture book, you need to have your spine with your title on it and mm -hmm. your name, or the libraries won't take it. I mean, they're mm -hmm. just kind of rules that the industry has that you need to know. So, but I That's do it, it's fun. <laughs> it is. It's it, it's a it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot to learn. But it but you know it's it's baby steps. And then and and what is exciting is there's this this community. If you're writing a horse book, there's this community that we've created with each other where you can ask people like, "How did you do this?" or "What book should I read?" or "What are good resources?" or even this podcast I think is going to be a helpful right. resource for people. One other thing I wanted to mention too, when you were talking about um, your journey in self-publishing, is I think something really important to talk about, especially now um, with the rise of independent publishing and the quality of the work and the award-winning authors, is that you retain your intellectual property. When right. you, you self-publish your own books and you have your own imprint, your publishing imprint, you retain all the intellectual property that comes along with your book. So you can sell overseas, you can make it into a screenplay, you can sell it as a movie, you can sell it as a TV series, you can create the audiobooks, and you retain the rights to, to all of those different streams of income for your creative work. And I think, I think what sometimes people don't, don't know about is when you, you have to be very, there's nothing wrong with signing with a traditional publisher, just make sure you have legal representation to help you understand what you're signing in your contract, because often there's things buried where you could potentially lose some of your intellectual property rights that you need to, right. to watch out for. Is that and right? That is right. And just to give you an example, um, my beta reader, that's another thing is get beta readers mm -hmm. that are familiar with horses or your topic, whatever your topic is. Um, the pre president of the Colorado Authors League, um, Denny Dressman, had, is a sports history writer and added past journalist for the Rocky Mountain News. And he was writing a book about a horse racing trainer, famous guy. And he wanted me to be his beta reader for that book to check that he had gotten the horse information correct. Okay. And so he said, and so he asked me, well, what are you working on right now? And I told him about Pinto. Well, with the history part, he was just all over it. He said, can I be your beta reader? <laughs> and I said, absolutely because he really knows what he's doing in that in that genre well he loved 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 the book and he said this book needs to go big time you need to send this to new york i said oh you know i just really wanted to do it myself you know and he says no you just really need to send it will you promise me you'll at least send it to a couple 
a big publishers. So I said, okay. So I did, and I sent it out to a couple and waited for the three months I promised him I'd wait. And then I started in doing it myself. I didn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Well, about two weeks before Pinto was released, I got a contract in the mail from one of these big New York publishers. And I, I wrote them back and said, thank you very much, but the horse is already out of the corral. But <laughs> he said, well, if you change your mind. So they're, they're willing for me to still send it to them and they would do a second edition um, if I chose. But that's how much they like the book, which is good. Mm-hmm. But you know, as I read the contract, they, and they were offering me in advance that the royalties, now that you've got to compute this out and you'll realize my reasoning here, was 10% of the net. 10% of the net. And the way I computed it, running my numbers, I'd get about 25 cents a book. Mm. So they also would have the rights to foreign um, to any uh, to submit it to foreign countries, any movie rights, anything like that, I would get a percentage of those, but just a small percentage, like 10% of some, 20% of something else. They've got this whole list in the contract. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, you're signing away your book, mm-hmm. and you have to realize that, and that's fine. I mean, if they, they have advantages that we don't. Mm-hmm. They can get them into libraries easier, there are still some awards programs and some bloggers that will not look at um, independently published books or self-published books. Won't, they won't look at them. So they have avenues that we don't have. That's true. Mm-hmm. But um, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. We are. I mean, Lots the industry has, has grown and changed so much. It, it's, it's changed. And, and I, like to, I like to equate independent publishing and indie authors to that of like, uh, indie uh, uh, indie artists or in, independent film and and how and, and the artisanal movement where people buy local and and are handcrafting things themselves and you know kind of going around the big corporate arms of things which you know there's nothing wrong with it it's just it just gives a lot more power back to the creator and yeah. and it and it's a really exciting time to be to be writing your own books and and retaining it really your is, property especially yeah. with the avenues that we have to work with you know, mm-hmm. to be able to download a formatting program. Mm-hmm. I mean, so wonderful. Are you talking about Vellum? The one I use is, I, I use Joel Freelander's okay. um, programs. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's a plethora of interior yeah. formatting programs available now that are very good. I, I happen yeah. to use Vellum. I love it. You can format yourself, your own books now um, for a one-time purchase price, whereas in the past, I mean, you can do it for ebook you can and you can do it for paperback and you you can have that power to do it yourself in the past i mean before the last couple of years even with my first books i had to send it away to a graphic design or a designer and pay them incrementally each time i wanted a revision to the interior format now i can do all that myself and one-time cost is far less expensive than having to go back and back and back and back to the same person for each book or each version of the book and and like even things like your website my website which is uh, dancinghorsepress.com mm-hmm. I do myself when I was working with the publisher they set up the website for me but I couldn't um, 
change things at will. Mm-hmm. I had to go through them. They, when they got around to it, they'd make changes. Mm-hmm. Now my website is, I can get it up to date. I can put things, you know, when I get an award, I can post it immediately. When I'm mm-hmm. going to do a school visit or an author talk somewhere, I can put that under my events page. Mm-hmm. And I can update things immediately. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have that control. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, there's, there's a lot of pros, but I'm the same way. I mean, but you also have to do the work, like you were saying, like if you want to have, you want to have a successful author career, it's nice to have the control, but you have to also be willing to do the work. And that means taking care to do things correctly and not just hurrying up and putting something out there, like releasing the very best product you can and putting together the very best, uh, social brand for yourself that you can, you know, so it's, it takes something, but it's also so very rewarding to have, to see the, see your success and, and to have things happen, um, from all that effort. So well done. Yes. I have a little sticky note on my computer that says, stay positive, work hard, make it happen. Yeah. Go and that's girl. what I tell myself every day. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that. I mean, you, you're, you're very clearly doing that and, and you're an inspiration. Um, so Given that sticky note that you look at every day, do you, how is your day structured? Like how, how, how do you get the most writing done? Like, do you have a, a writing ritual or do you just I like do. wing it? Uh, no, no. I, first of all, let me say, I've met many people who say to me, oh, I started a book. I got only got stuck on the first or second chapter. And, I, you know, I just kept going back and getting it good, but I just can't get past it. And I go, that's your problem. First draft is only a first draft. Until you have your first draft done, you don't have anything but an idea. Mm-hmm. You have to write and get that first draft done. So I don't start writing until I have the whole idea figured out in my head. I don't outline and I don't storyboard. But I have the whole idea figured out in my head, usually from going on trail rides up in the mountains. <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> Being outside, the idea. I know, is isn't that great? Uh-huh. But I have the story figured out, and then I start writing. I don't have it perfected, but I write from the first word to the end without ever looking back. I do not look back. I write, and I write, and I write, and I write, and I keep moving, 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 and writing until I get to the end. And the end, you know, most of my books are about 65,000 words. That's usually my target number Mm -hmm. for my age group. And that varies with the age group you're writing for. But I um, don't look back until I have that first draft done. But there's my platform. There's my foundation. Mm-hmm. And then I go back and I start revising and embellishing and adding some color and some flair and making it more fun and getting in. And then it ends up being about 65,000 words by the time I've done draft two, three, four, however many it takes. But that first draft needs to get done. And then you can have something. You can have something to work with. Okay, so my pattern is, as I mentioned, I have it in my head figured out first. But I am a morning person. Most horse people are. (laughs) And I get up usually 6 o'clock and I write for about an hour and a half. And at about 7.30, the horses are calling. And I go out and I feed horses and I clean stalls. And for about an hour, I'm out 
outside taking care of the horses. Then I come back in and I'll write for another hour, hour and a half. So I like to put in about three hours of writing, but I also have to put in some marketing time, mm -hmm. social media things, submitting to a book award, um, submitting books to reviewers, uh, you know, particularly before you um, publish a book, you know, you like those quotes on the back, mm -hmm. you know, you submit those ahead of time. So you submit some of your review copies, you know, things like that I'm doing as well so i'm spending way more than three hours a day on my books way more <laughs> that's right but i i love your your i love that you're you write first thing in the morning when you're fresh i'm the same way like at the end of the i like to be creative with my time in the morning um and then do the business side of things uh later in the day because um i just you know it's like going it doesn't work for me to go the opposite way and then i also it sounds like you might be like this too but when i'm writing I do what you do. I keep going and I don't go back. I get that first draft done, but I also make a promise to myself to touch my novel every day because I feel like when I'm working on it consecutively, it, it, it stays with me and I'm thinking about it all the other time too. I carry a journal around. I'm writing down all the time, but if you're away from your novel for an extended period of time, I feel like it's harder to get that first draft done because you take these pauses and the breaks. Do you, do, would you agree with that? And I totally agree with that. I mean, you need to, now I've just come back from eight days of vacation where I didn't work at all. You got to hit refresh every once in a while. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> now I'm going to have to go and hit refresh, but you need to write something. Now my goal is usually a thousand words a day. That's a great goal. Yeah, yeah. I, I but, agree. But I don't hold myself to it. Mm -hmm. so, but that's my goal is a thousand words a day. And then but even if I don't have that much in a day, I have to do something on the book mm -hmm. every day. Because mm -hmm. you're close to it, keeps it alive. And that keeps, alive. that keeps your brain working. Yeah. And it keeps the, see right now I'm writing a story that isn't even a, I mean, it isn't a horse story, it's another fantasy. What, it's not a horse I know. story? <laughs> I know, it's not a horse story. So most of my readers aren't even gonna want it. <laughs> they, I'm sure they will. <laughs> but it's a fantasy, and it's like North Mystic, which is my other non-horse story. Uh -huh. And it's kind of, it's a, a fantasy based on um, a fun, a fun store that I happened to see up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that was called Big Pickles Toy Emporium. Oh, that sounds fun. the name of the store, and I went, oh, and my whole idea came to me, and there isn't a horse in it. But... <laughs> You can swing one in there somewhere. It can like gallop by in a scene I, or something. Well, I put in a stuffed zebra. <laughs> You're getting there. That's getting like, there. Well, yeah, I'm, well. I'm kidding. There's so many um, of us have, have parlayed into other, you know, things yeah. that don't include horses. You know, it is so. just fun to do that once in a while. And I think yeah. it keeps our horse stories fresh as well. Absolutely. Totally because agree. After, you, know, you have to follow the ideas, right? Yeah. Like when you get an idea like this, it's like, it's, go it's it. magic. It's your muse. It's speaking to you. It's calling you. So it you is. have to follow and, it. And this whole story just came to me while we were up in Port, I mean, up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So now I have to, I'm writing this story and, and then I have to get their permission to use the name of their store. But oh, hopefully they'll love the story and they'll want it on there. How cool. There could be some really fun, intricate marketing with, with that going on. I know. They could, great you partnership. Could. You could. Yeah. Because it really is a, a store, but I added the Mr. Fig Pickles because I've got Mr. 
Mr. Fig Pickles in the story. Mm -hmm. but, and you think, you know, he's the owner of the toy store and you think he's the bad guy. Oh, this yeah, sounds intriguing. He's I'm not to follow the this one. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a fun story. But then after that, I, I would like to try writing a horse-based mystery. Oh, that'll be great. So you, you kind of cover all the gamut, so you don't limit yourself to any one genre, which I think is really special. Which is fun because I read lots mm -hmm. of different genres. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, fantasy is my favorite, but you know, historical fiction was super fun to write and it involved different kinds of research. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like I even looked up when was denim invented so I could say if they were wearing denim jeans or not. You know? <laughs> I mean, there's just different kinds of research that you do with historical fiction. And, and then my contemporary coming-of-age novel, In the Heart of a Mustang, that was a different genre. Mm -hmm. But it's just fun to, but fantasy is still my favorite, I have to say. That's, I love That's <laughs> great. Well, and I'm so excited. And, and it sounds like writing is going to be something that you're, you're always doing. And so another question, when I was uh, galloping around your website looking for, you know, developing my interview questions for you, I noticed you do a lot of work with uh, school schools. And you know, I wanted to ask, you know, a little bit about those events and then how, how else you reach readers? Like what are, what are, what are some tips in, for reaching readers of your books? Okay, that's a really good question. Now, first of all, you have to analyze carefully who are your readers. Right. If you're writing romance, it's women and book clubs and things like that, that particularly like romance. And those are very successful. Mm -hmm. But um, middle grade young adult is, I took a marketing class for authors and they said, if you write for middle grade and young adult, you have the hardest job. Mm -hmm. I'm going, great. And they <laughs> said, because the readers of your books are not the buyers. Ah, the buyers are the parents or grandparents. And so you have to reach the readers to convince them they want to read your book. And then you have to reach the buyers to convince them they'll want to buy your book for the kids. So it's, it's really tough. I know clearly who my readers are. And one of the ways I reach my readers is school visits. Mm. I've developed a really fun presentation on my favorite writing tips for fourth through eighth graders. And it, I go to the schools and I, I don't charge for my school visits. Um, but, and I, and on top of that, they can get a school discount price on the books, but it's difficult sometimes to get into schools, particularly mm -hmm. if they're caught up in the common core curriculum, they don't have much freedom to do anything else. They're really teaching for the tests, you know, mm -hmm. but, but it just kind of depends on the school. Charter schools have a little more leeway. Private schools have a little more leeway as well. But um, get, so getting into the schools is kind of hard. It helps to know a teacher who can give you a recommendation. Mm. And who, so if you have friends who are teachers, ask them to help you get into a school. And they often know, say, fifth grade teachers or sixth grade teachers in other schools as well. Mm -hmm. And they can give you a reference um some school districts have like denver public schools has a um uh, a um, speakers bureau and they actually contacted me hearing from another teacher that i did a really good job i used to be a teacher so i can 
I can be in the classroom. With you, no you've got this, then. Yeah. I've got this. I got this. But so they contact me and put me on their speakers bureau catalog. They have a catalog they send out to the, all the teachers. So that's another way that worked out really well to get into the schools. Um, I also made up a, a little one page uh, introduction that I took around to several schools just in my area. Mm. So I'm a local author, I live really close, or my kids went to your school or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And I give them this little one page introduction and tell them that I'm willing to come in and speak. So schools have been a really good um, place for me to go. I also go to horse things. Like when I went to Oklahoma City to the museum, I also s signed books at the um, Little Britches National Rodeo. Oh, fun. There, there's my horse people. Mm -hmm. The National Western Stock Show here in Denver, I signed books. I, I am at the Colorado Horse Council booth. No, not the Colorado Horse Council. Yes, Colorado Horse Council booth. And I signed books as a benefit for them. And the um, Rocky Mountain Horse Expo, I'll have a table and sign books. So you figure out where your readers. With my trail guide books, as I mentioned, where do my where do horse people go? They go to tack and feed stores. Mm -hmm. So that's where I got my books into was tack and feed stores. So you've got to figure out who your audience is and where they're going to be. Now, um, I have found I get invited to a lot of library author days mm -hmm. and I'll go to support the libraries because they support authors. Mm -hmm. so I'll go, but those really aren't a very good place to sell books. I've found people go to libraries to check out books. They don't go to libraries to buy books. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But you still want to support the libraries. Mm -hmm. So if you ever want to get your books in, they need to know who you are. And so now they know who I am. And so they'll invite me to their author days. And so I always go, even though I know I'm not going to be selling many books. Sometimes you'll sell a few, but not yeah. too many. But that's the interesting thing about events. They're always kind of surprising and you're never kind of sure what you're going to get, but you always meet fantastic people, even if it's just one or two. I, I've, I've found I always come away from doing an event with some sort of inspiration or having met somebody really, really fun. So yeah. it, never know how many books you're going to sell. Some events you sell a ton and you expected to sell not any and some of books you, some you don't, but you don't sell a whole lot and you're expecting to sell a ton. So it's just, right. kind of, who knows? And I have to say Christmas time is my big time. You know, so I do a lot of um, arts fest, holiday gift festivals. Oh. Colorado Authors League always buys a, a large booth at this big Christmas, um, Denver country Christmas mart thing. And, and we authors get together and put up a bookstore there. So Christmas events are really um, beneficial. I sell a lot of books at Christmas events. That's great. So, so events and going where the horse people are, expos mm -hmm. and different things like that, and, and particularly with working with the schools and building relationships with the schools have helped you reach readers. That's great. Right. And Colorado is a great place to be an author who writes but about horses. I mean, lots of, lots of horsey stuff going on out there. <laughs> well, especially where I live. I live by Parker, which is where the Colorado horse park is, where all the big horse shows are. Oh. And so when Pinto uh, was being released, Dover Saddlery has a brick and, brick and mortar store here in Parker. They hosted the launch party. 
Oh my goodness. I Who know. Over there? I'm sure and that was, was I mean, isn't that amazing that they did that? I mean, that was so nice. They hosted this wonderful party and I gave a presentation on the research I had done and the history of the Overland Westerners. And Oh, that's so perfect. Cake and refreshments and they gave gift certificates to everybody who came and they were really nice. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, in Dover, they've been around for since I was a little cowgirl, you know, they're, they're like a legend. So like having yeah. a, a book launch there is like an amazing, amazing opportunity. It Good was. And, and for me, I mean, stores like Barnes and Noble, they've contacted me to do book signings and they're very nice to local authors. Um, but the problem with Barnes and Noble, and you have to, I figured out a way to solve this problem is that they will pre-order a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. But then if you don't sell them at the book sign, they don't have room in their stores for a whole bunch of books. Mm. So they don't always keep your books on the shelf. They'll send them back and they'll over order. They'll order way too many. And then they'll send them back and then you have to pay for oh the returns. <laughs> so I have figured out what I'm going to do the next time they ask me to come for a book signing. Because sometimes they'll have a an event where they want some local authors and they'll call me. Well, I decide I'm going to say on the condition that I can buy from you at your price, all the books you don't sell rather than sending them back. Interesting. Otherwise it costs me money. Yeah. So that would make sense. Or in, in, in why wouldn't they allow you to, bring your own books and then take a portion of the sale. That, that seems like it would make more, more sense. Yeah, they just don't, that's things. just not how their policy is. They order the books and mm -hmm. they order them through Ingram. Mm -hmm. Ingram's kind of the biggest now. Baker, mm -hmm. Baker also, but Ingram's the biggest I think now. And they'll order them and have the books there for you. But, and that's, I guess for their bookkeeping, I don't know. Their it probably makes sense with their systems, but, but I yeah. think your proposal makes a whole lot of sense, particularly for an independent author to be able to buy back the books that they purchased and then, you know, use them on, on your own yeah. next event. And, and then I can use them at my own events. That's right. My books. So. That's good. Well, thank you for bringing that that up because I, I actually have not yet done an event with Barnes and Noble. So it's it's interesting to hear what your experience of that was and something to be prepared for, right? And and that's what this podcast is all about is authors sharing knowledge with other authors so we we know more and broaden our horizons and help each other out, right? I'm all about authors uniting and sharing things like that. That's right. And helping each other with your you know uh, critique groups, those mm -hmm. are always beneficial and beta readers beta readers beta, beta readers are advanced readers for those of you who haven't heard that term before that offer they look to catch like typos and offer some feedback on the book and then usually they don't they agree to to leave a review uh when the book is finally published and yes, honest they will. but i always um look for a beta reader that has uh, expertise in horses not just in writing but in the subject matter that's so, right that's great advice so so so, so many Great tips and so much information. MJ, I, I so appreciate you being here today. I've got a, a couple more questions for you that, I mean, it's so funny. It's like the, as we've been going through the questions, you're actually answering a lot of the questions I already had with some of your answers, which is wonderful because they all do kind of lead into each other. But I, this is something I was interested about. Like, what do you think, in your opinion, is 
the best thing about being an author and then also the hardest thing about being an author? I'm, I'm curious what your perspective on that is. Okay, clearly the best thing is getting to be creative. Mm. Just letting your creative ideas flow. And that's one reason I particularly love fantasy is because you can really go crazy with your creativity. <laughs> but cre being creative, having a job where you get to be creative all the time is so rewarding and so much fun. Mm -hmm. the, and I love getting letters from my readers. I love getting letters that they from the parents who say, your books got my child love to read. Oh, you know I mean, when you get letters like that, or the other day, um, a little girl ran up to me and recognized me and said, I'm, she was reading Pinto and she said, I'm on chapter four in Pinto and I love it so Aww. much. You know, I, I, you know, just when you get things like that, it's wonderful. But the hardest part for me is, okay, all of you authors have to be thick skinned. Because mm -hmm. not everybody's going to love your book. Mm -hmm. Not every editor is going to love it. Not every publisher is going to love it. Not every reader is going to love it. You just have to go, oh, well, you know, and you just have to carry on, you know, just a plot twist and move on. Mm -hmm. But um, the, I'm a very social person and it's a lonely job mm. by yourself mm -hmm. You're in your office. I work at home in my office typing away and it's my my standard poodle comes and puts her head on my lap but that's kind of all the company I have so that's why I particularly like doing school visits or doing um book fair, fairs or festivals because you get to then you get to meet readers and you get to talk to people so I like that that's wonderful and I really like what you said about growing the the thick skin are there any pointers for um, newbie authors that you can share on, on how to not let, how to not let, um, you know, maybe your first bad review or, or something like that really impact you and, and motivate people to keep writing? Okay. I'll tell you one thing. I, one of the books I don't have up here is North Mystic and it's the fantasy that I said is not a horse story, so I didn't bother to put it up here. <laughs> it's an allegory of the Revolutionary War, but with trolls and leprechauns. And Ooh. the trolls represent the British and the leprechauns represent the colonists. And it's funny and, you know, it's just a fun book. Well, I sent it out to a publisher that was recommended. And um, this was when I was still just focusing on getting a publisher. So this was my fourth book. And I submitted it and the publisher wrote back almost right away and said they wanted the full manuscript. So I sent the full manuscript in and then waited. That's what you have to do. You have to wait, wait, wait. And then they sent me back a letter. The editor sent me back a single spaced full page letter telling me why they weren't going to take the book. And she listed so much helpful information. It would have cost me $1,000 to get that kind of feedback mm -hmm. from a, a professional editor. And she wrote down all this great information and suggestions and things. Well, do you think that I ignored that? No way. I took every single thing she said and I 
applied it to my book. And I made every change she said, suggested. And then I submitted it to some other publishers. And I had three publishers want that book. But when that book won first place in the Purple Dragonfly Awards, I wrote to that editor and I thanked her. And I said, thanks to you, this book just won this award. I took every one of your suggestions. So you've got to eat a little humble pie. You can't be so in love with your own writing that you can't take constructive criticism. You've got to be willing to say, okay, okay, all right, I see your point, and make some changes. Hmm. And then what would you say for someone, I was just, I was interviewing uh, someone for the show, and they said that one of the most difficult, or one of their favorite one-star reviews that they ever received was, hell no. This was, uh, and I, <laughs> how do you, as a new author, something like that would probably crush someone, like just someone with a one star and hell no. And, and to me that, you know, if you're going to leave a review, at least leave the constructive feedback so the author can do something with, you know, your, what you didn't like about the book, you yeah. know, and, and be kind, you know, like this, is, this, it's hard because it's a creative process and you put a lot of yourself into it and it takes a lot, a lot of time. And to have someone say something like that is like kind of hurtful. So what would you say to somebody that gets their first Hell no. <laughs> I know. I, you know, North Mystic, I think, is the only book that I got a one star mm -hmm. on. And the funny thing was, the person said, there was way too much history in it. <laughs> it's a historical book, right? It's a historic, it's an allegory of a historical event. <laughs> I got a lot of history in it. They probably wouldn't like Pinto either. Yeah, it sounds like someone but, picked up the wrong genre. <laughs> yeah, they did. But you know, if, if they just say hell no, and they don't give you anything you can take from that to try to improve your writing, then you throw that out the window. Mm -hmm. You don't respond, though. You make yeah. sure you never respond to those, um, crit you know, those kinds of negative um, feedback. But the, I mean, I did, I was judging for one uh, awards program and i read a book that to me was just pornographic i mean i just mm. I, was, I just thought it was and it was poorly written it was just a terrible book mm -hmm. when the, everything was over i went on amazon and i didn't identify myself as a judge but i gave this person a one star and i got um she tracked me down and wrote to me and said you know why would, in the world would you give it a one? And da, 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 da. Oh my. So I wrote her back and I gave her like six things that were serious problems with the book and her writing. Well, I later saw that every, except for her 50 friends who put up five star reviews, everyone else had done ones. Hmm. And they had said some of the same things that I had said to her in my letter back. And she wrote back to them and reamed them. You just don't know what you're talking about. You don't know good literature. Haven't you read Fifty Shades of Grey? And it's a big bestseller and da 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 da. Mm. And you just go, okay, no authors. We need to be professional. Mm -hmm. We don't respond. Like, mm -hmm. we don't respond at all. We just say, okay, you know, maybe there's something I can do to improve that, your suggestion. Or maybe there's not. Maybe, 
maybe they really aren't a literary genius and we don't need to take their criticism. Yeah, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's just a really interesting thing. And I think it's something for, for people who are starting to um, take the journey of being an author to, to keep in mind, right? You know, just keep in mind that your book isn't going to be for everyone. And, you know, so, so, and it's hard the first couple of times, but then, but then you move past it and you, you take the feedback and you work with it and you grow as a writer and, and you will always grow as a writer. The more books you write, the more your writing improves and the more you grow and the more people will read your books and then the more, you know, mixed reviews you'll get. And that's just kind of, yeah. part, of the, part of the package, right? But um, well, and you just have to expect that. Yeah, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything about you or your writing. You right. take it with what it is because the person that wrote what they wrote was coming from whatever was going on for them in their life at the time that they read, read your book. And, you know, so it's just, you know, some, some authors even take to not even bothering reading their reviews and just writing for the love of writing and, and give, giving their gift to the world and then being like, okay, that's it. You know, and then whatever reviews happen, they just, they're like, I'm moving on to the next thing. I've, I've already shut that door, you know? So it's, you just got to deal with it the, the, the way that is best for you and not, and not let it ever, ever defeat you in your journey to being an author and writing, right? And, and some people viewing this podcast may not ever aspire to be a, an award-winning, selling author. You know, maybe you just want to get your memoirs down and publish 10 copies to distribute to your family for Christmas. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. still the creative process we're talking about that we love so much. That's fine. I'm, I'm directing most of my comments to people who really do want to become a successful author. Mm -hmm. And maybe the people watching this too just really love horse books and want to know more about the authors. So your reviews mean very much to us and we appreciate them. And if, and if you do have constructive feedback, please do let us know. Um, extrapolate on hell no, please. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the other thing is please do post reviews. They're mm -hmm. so important. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon kind of gears all their algorithms around reviews mm -hmm. so and please do post reviews if you read one of my books unless you a good review <laughs> no it does really help i think they say one one out of every 100 readers actually reviews a book for an author so those of you that take the time to to leave reviews for books you've enjoyed it's very much appreciated and it and it helps other other people just like you that would love our book find our books so it makes a big difference thank you we have had quite a conversation. We are, we're kind of hitting the, the edge of the marker here and you've shared so much amazing information with us. I, I wanted to ask you one final question. First of all, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing so much of your wisdom and uh, information with us and, and being just so generous. And congratulations on the success of all of your books. And I can't wait to see what you keep doing. And I can't wait to see you and give you a hug when we're together. Oh, yes. At the I can't Festival. Wait to see you in person too. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have so much fun. Um, but, but for now, let readers know where they can find you in your books. Okay. Well, my best resource for my books is my website. My website is dancinghorsepress.com and all my books with little summaries are available there. But they're also available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, through independent bookstores, wherever books are sold. Uh, if you wanted to find out more about me in terms of just my life, I have a 
Instagram account, MJ Evans. I think I sent it to you. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll include all these links in your okay, show notes. Great. There's links, and I, I have a, a link for my Pinterest boards, and I have a link for my Facebook pages. So you can get a hold of me, and I always write back. So you're welcome to write to me if you have any questions about anything we've talked about today. That's wonderful. Thank you for supporting your readers and other authors and being a part of this amazing community we're building around our horse books. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for Thank being on the you. show. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was so fun to, to visit with you and I'll see you in Kentucky. Yes, ma'am. I can't wait. It'll be fun. Yep. Bye. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.